0: I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. you will be joined shortly by the great Seth Leipsin. Seth is a Phoenix, Arizona-based radio host. Really, one of the unsung heroes from my perspective of the conservative commentary. I cannot wait to bring on Seth to have a lively conversation. Who knows where exactly we will go? But I want to spend just a couple minutes here at the outset talking about an issue that, predictably, unfortunately, is probably not getting the level of outrage. Just the level of just visceral kind of screaming at the top of your lungs outrage that it should. And, you know, there are some folks on our side. There are some folks on the left as well who kind of take it to 11 every time. The decibel level is always getting raised. You never know how serious the issue is because they're just taking it there each and every week, it seems like. And I think that this is actually an issue that is legitimately worth getting pissed off about, really pissed off. And I don't say that lightly I am talking here about the failure or the purported failure, depending on how you view it, of the United States Supreme Court to discover who leaked the draft opinion for the Dobbs abortion case last May. So we have a wonderful op-ed and Newsweek opinion out on this topic this week. And it, the op-ed is entitled A Supreme Disgrace at the High Court, written by Ben Weingart. And so you can go ahead and read the op-ed for yourself but for those of you who have not been paying attention to this story, we, we do obviously covered the Dobbs case at great length in its kind of winding course to being ultimately decided at the Supreme Court. Of this is the case that ultimately overturned Roe versus Wade, the abortion issue, therefore returning that issue away from constitutionalized rights status to the status of the democratic process. And about a month and a half before the Dobbs case came out, there was, a, there was an unprecedented leak of this opinion to Josh Gerstein and one other co-author at Politico, and this leak literally had an authentic draft opinion. Now, there's, again, we discussed this at great length, but this was, in fact, if I recall correctly, we actually even did a special episode on this. This is a big, big deal. The United States Supreme Court is Article 3 of the Constitution. That is the federal judiciary. It is one of the three branches of government, obviously, as you learn in Civics 101, along with the executive branch and along with the Congress. A functioning Supreme Court is vital, is absolutely vital to American constitutionalism, to, to kind of borrow the left's favorite words. It is vital to the preservation and sustenance of, quote unquote, our democracy, which is why it is appalling absolutely appalling that almost a year later, from early May 2022 to late January 2023, the report has come in from the marshal of the Supreme Court and they apparently can't figure out who it was. This is inexplicable. Absolutely inexplicable. So, So again, start with the idea that there really were not that many possibilities as to who this could possibly be. So the eight associate justices typically have four law clerks. The chief justice has five law clerks. That's 37 law clerks. 37 law clerks plus nine justices gets you to 46. Right there, those 46 people are your main targets. Obviously, if you want to be sober and reasonable about this, you can very easily probably knock off at least half of them because every incentive in the world would have suggested that this leak would have come from from the left side of the Supreme Court. Since day one, I have said the most likely suspect was Justice Sonia Sotomayor or one of her law clerks as the most unhinged, radical, pro-abortion Supreme Court justice. And then maybe you can throw in some other kind of court employees there. Apparently, the unsigned statement that the court put out, they interviewed almost 100 court employees, roughly 82 of whom accessed the opinion. So we're, you know, we're including here various kind of court staffers, administrators. Okay. Here's the bottom line. The bottom line is that they apparently made all the law clerks sign affidavits, like sworn affidavits. They did not do so with the Supreme Court justices, to which I say, why? Why? And the answer is, and again, who in the world could have seen this coming, is that the Marshal of the Supreme Court, which is a largely kind of ministerial figure, administrative figure. She, she doesn't wield a lot of day-to-day power. She is an underling of the justices. She of, she reports to them. So of course she's not necessarily going to feel comfortable asking these mighty robed oracles, these judicial oligarchs, to kind of have formal interviews where they sign sworn affidavits there. But that is disgraceful. And the fact that that was so easily foreseeable should have led Chief Justice John Roberts... To call in, as disgraced institution as it is right now, perhaps the FBI or perhaps some other sort of law enforcement apparatus, to assist with this critical investigation. Now, why is it so critical? Well, it, it is very simply so critical because the Supreme Court cannot simply cannot act in a world where its internal deliberations, its draft opinions, its memos, its emails, its notes, its colloquies, its correspondences between the justices, the clerks, the staffers, it cannot work in a world in which that is at threat of being released to the public. It just can't. The court is literally predicated upon the solemnity and the seriousness of its internal deliberations to ultimately arrive at reasoned judgments that adhere and uphold the Constitution. To say nothing of the fact that there was a aborted at the last minute near assassination against sitting Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Do you remember this? This lunatic abortion rights supporter traveled all the way from California to Kavanaugh's home outside D.C. in Maryland with... Uh, I mean, he had like a whole toolkit. It looked like he had sick six, six ideas in mind. He was carrying a handgun as well, if I recall. Ended up getting cold feet, turning himself in last minute. That could have been really, 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 really ugly. In a sane world, the leaker of this opinion would be, his or her name would be publicly out there, blasted disbarred from whatever bar he or she is a member of and forever made a source of shame and disgrace and would really never be heard from again. And I do not think that it is particularly conspiratorial or even a l- tremendous leap at this point, given the fact that, again, <laughs> just the numbers game, guys, here are not that many suspects. The fact that it took them this long, they... They either can't seem to do it, or maybe they're trying to hide something with that low number kind of total of possibilities. You take that, you combine with the fact that the justices themselves did not sign the affidavits, were not subject to the same formal process as the law clerks and other staffers. Again, I do not think at this point it is particularly conspiratorial to think that the leading culprit is a liberal justice him or herself, and I, for one, would point my finger at Justice Sonia Sotomayor. But for now, just absolute disgrace, absolute disgrace on the United States Supreme Court, Chief Justice John Roberts and the entirety of this godforsaken, quote unquote, investigation stamped with this imprimatur of legitimacy by former DHS Secretary Michael Chertoff. Give me a break. Give me a break. Everyone involved in this pseudo investigation should resign in disgrace if they had even a modicum of decency maybe one day we will find out who the leaker was but at this point i cannot say i am optimistic as i just said i have my strong thoughts though as to who it very well might be so let's take it to a quick commercial break we'll be right back on the other side as mentioned with the great seth Leepson. stay with us So what a pleasure to bring on this week a gentleman and a friend who, you know, of all the podcast radio shows that I go on, he is one of my absolute favorite hosts. I I say that really, really, really quite candidly. It is always a true pleasure to go on the Seth Leibson show out in Phoenix, Arizona, 960 AM out there. Seth Leibson is also a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute. Seth, thank you so much for joining us this week.
1: Josh, I'm totally honored. Um, there are a few writers and speakers I pay as much attention to as you, and I thank you for the compliment. It means a ton to me coming from someone like yourself. I really admire what you have been doing and what you have done with Newsweek and what you are doing generally in our uh, public intellectual discourse.
0: Well, it's really quite kind to of you. And, you know, one thing, Seth, that I think you and I have. Bonded over, finally both in person, long overdue last year, and previously, and since then, in our various kind of on-air colloquies, is I think we come from a very kind of similar kind of intellectual starting point. And you, you're a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, where I I was a fellow a number of moons ago now, and have stayed in close touch with the folks at the institute since then. So, uh, talk a little bit then about what exactly you think it is about the Claremont universe, and I use that kind of. Also, not just literally referring to the institution, but kind of just the broader worldview about what this kind of American founding-centric approach to American politics, how does that inform your day-to-day view of the American right? And I would also be kind of curious for how that has affected your view of the state of the right in this very kind of tumultuous, turbulent time over the past few years.
1: Sure, Josh, and cut me off anywhere. Um, I owe... A lot to the Claremont Institute. Uh, Mostly I owe nearly everything to Harry Jaffa, who was the intellectual founder of the Claremont Institute. When I went to Claremont undergrad, I was a socialist lefty. And um, yeah, I uh, so yeah, I'm not sure if if our beginnings are the same. Actually, (laughs) they may not be. Uh, Yeah, the Birkenstocks, the long hair (laughs) president of the anti-nuclear club and all that. But I was the editor of the uh, Five College newspaper out there, and I wrote a, an editorial against something Harry Jaffa had uh, given a speech upon, and he invited me to uh, debate him since I called him uh, and his views abominable. And I told him, you know, I'm just a snot-nosed undergraduate. I'm not going to debate you. Uh, he said, well, would you meet for coffee? And I said, sure. And uh, he grabbed my hand and never let go and um, changed my whole worldview and probably professional career as well. So I owe a lot to Jaffa. I owe a lot to the Claremont Institute. One of the things that I think distinguishes their outlook and approach is I was, I was reading an interesting op-ed from the Wall Street Journal about a year ago. I had reason to revisit it. Um, it was written by Joseph Epstein about modern conservatism, and he mentioned the four the four people most important, and it was, uh, I don't know if I'll get them all, John Stuart Mill, uh, I think John Locke, uh, Frederick Hayek. There's one other I'm forgetting, and it dawned on me, you know, all of these are smart people. Uh, We've all read them. None of them are American, uh, interestingly enough. And I think what the Claremont Institute has done perhaps the only, if not the best job at, is showing that there is an American idea that should inform and impel conservatism. And it starts obviously with our founding and it starts with Jefferson and Madison. It starts with um, the stuff Harry Jaffa wrote so well about the wedding of uh, individual liberty to the notion of equality, that you, you can't have one without the other. If you have liberty without equality, you have libertarianism, if not libertinism. If you have equality without liberty, you have, perverted notions that lead you to socialism and to separate the notions of liberty and quality found in our founding documents, particularly uh, some of the early state founding documents in the Declaration of Independence is to uh, have a staircase with, um, that separates the upstairs and downstairs nature of it. Uh, so I, I, I think what Claremont has done the best job of is showing that there is an American idea And not only is there an idea, but it is worth saving. Um, Perhaps the best description I would end on, pursuing any other questions you want, is something a student of Walter Burns and both Walter Burns and Harry Jaffa once said, a man named Dennis Teddy, I don't know if you know him. Uh, He did uh, undergraduate with Walter Burns and graduate school with Jaffa. And he said, until I met Walter Burns, I didn't know that an intellectual could love America. And until I met Harry Jaffa, I couldn't understand why. (laughs) So I think it's the deep delve into what our founding documents uh, mean in creating what Jefferson called uh, the best hope of the world and what Abraham Lincoln called the last best hope of the world.
0: No, indeed he did. Indeed he did. And Lincoln is a is, is a figure who was oft-quoted on this show. His birthday is coming off on February 12th. That also happens to be my own birthday, which is no small source of pride for myself and always has been oh, for, for, for all Better of Better
1: my... than what I get. <laughs> <laughs> who, Whose
0: who's birthday were you born on?
1: I, I get Brad Pitt. <laughs> but it does explain all the confusion between the two of us.
0: <laughs> oh, man. No, that is quite funny. Quick aside, actually. I happen to think Brad Pitt is an underrated actor. People tend to think of him for his for his dashingly good looks and all of that. I actually think the man can act quite well. But, you know, I suppose that's neither here nor there for for. for pre- I, I can
1: do culture with you all day long, pop culture, if you want, because I agree with you. There's another area of agreement. He is an underrated actor. There's nothing he can't do.
0: No, he really is, actually. I mean, you can go back to, to, to the 1990s. He's he's yeah. just a, he's just a very just a very talented man. Um, but, you know, Seth, where you left off, your answer is actually exactly a perfect segue to where I want to go next because, you know, you and I, you know, you were mentioning there Jefferson, Madison, we just discussed Lincoln and Lincoln's palpable, absolutely palpable admiration for the American founding, his famous kind of, phrasing the declaration as the electric cord that binds all the generations and his kind of recourse to first american principles in in a, in a time of of ultimate crisis when the, the nation most needed it to pursue to pursue unity and ultimately to preserve the union itself one question that i find myself struggling with all the time. And it's a question that I like to ask some of our guests on this show, because this show, one of the late motifs of it is kind of dedicated to the so-called new right movement that has kind of spruced up the past few years and the direction of conservatism and all of that. And one of the questions that I always come back to is, you know, is the term conservative actually apropos for where we have to be if the goal which I think the the goal probably is is to restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. Put another way, I guess over a hundred years, well into the the post Woodrow Wilson world of progressivism and the administrative state and all this stuff that all of our Claremont folks wax poetic so eloquently about, is a disposition of conservatism sufficient, or is kind of the Chris Rufo kind of mentality of counter revolution? Um, you know, dare I say that kind of Leninist adjacent term, is that actually more appropriate for where we are right now?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't know. And maybe there's even a third road I'd feel more comfortable with, uh, with the phraseology of something like Americanism, uh, which presupposes that there's something about America worth preserving or conserving. The word conservative has always had a tough time defining itself. I always point out perhaps the most famous conservative uh, author, writer, intellect in our lifetime, certainly in the 20th century was William Buckley. He never wrote a book on it. Uh, He wrote a book on liberalism, but he never wrote a book on conservatism because he said it was too difficult. Now he and Charles Kessler put some essays together a couple of times in a book that tried to show the various various, uh, silos of conservatism, if you will. But I think it's too often a a vessel people pour their own thoughts into from various strands or avenues, whether it's the libertarian version of it or whether it's the neoconservative or the Strauss you you know, all this, you know, all these different strands. So it's hard to say conservatism is its own one thing. Um, And I don't know if if the Rufo definition gets thus there either. I suppose. It's about the kind of country we want to live in and the kind of people we want to live in. If you go back to Aristotle's book on politics, right, he says in the first, um, really, I think it's the first page, it's certainly the first chapter, that when man comes together to form a community, there are two institutions he forms. One is the family and one is the state or the polis. And then he says something interesting, which creates a lot of debate as to which is primary, which comes first. And he makes the point that the state actually should presuppose the family. The state should come first, the Polish should, should come first because you want to have, if the family is important, you want to have the kind of structure around it in which it can thrive. You want to make sure that if you are going to design uh, you know, an arm, it has to be considered as part of a body and what's the body going to do with the arm? so i I don't know if i'm answering your question josh or if i'm answering it the way you want feel free to push me on it but it seems to me that having abandoned those kinds of notions the kind of community we want to live in kind of people we want to be um you know we have to uh, take a step back and maybe start thinking about what these words mean. What does conservative mean? What are we trying to conserve? What does civil liberties mean? They mean liberty, liberties for a civil people. Are we a civil people? Are our institutions intact? Uh, are our families intact? My callers always remind me of the very well-known and well-trodden quote of John Adams, that our constitution was meant for immoral people and inadequate for anything else. And uh, I don't know how serious we take our Constitution anymore, and I don't know how seriously moral we are.
0: Anymore. Right. So I, I, I like the phrase Americanism a lot. I mean, I definitely have referred to myself as an Americanist. I've referred to kind of the deplorables, the the country class, and the late great Angelo Cotavilla's famous bifurcation between the ruling class and the country class. I've referred to the country class as the Americanist half of, of the country. And I like that phrase a lot. I, I I guess the question then is kind of more of the, of the means that are necessary to kind of get us yeah. back to Americanism. And you know, I I go back a little bit. Then I just think about all the the various kind of present symptoms of our current morass, whether it is critical race theory indoctrination or the gender ideology garbage that is re, that is you know uh, wreaking its way through the country like a horrible conflagration that our societal forces are seemingly incapable of putting out there. And one thing that I do come back to, and this is kind of also in kind of the the mode of kind of Claremont's kind of uh, Hadley Arkey style of of analysis, one thing that I come back to is is the the Ralph Lerner formulation of kind of constitutional actors as being Republican schoolmasters, and the kind of broader point that I'm getting at here, which is I think a key insight of this kind of broader New Right phenomenon is the idea here that law is not just responsive, but can also be a teacher. And it's kind of getting at a broader just approach to politics that is a little kind of less resistant to try to impose some idea of orthodoxies. And you know this is a this has been a big theme in my writings, my podcasting, in, in recent years, it's kind of the whole national conservatism movement. Neutrality is not an option. You have to you have to choose. You know, you have to choose whether you're prioritizing consumption or production when it comes to kind of trade policy, for instance. We discussed that on a recent episode on this show with with the great Steve Cortez. So you know, Seth, I guess the question then for you is. Um, kind of just speaking here about this kind of broader, kind of slightly more nationalist, populist kind of uh, neutrality, skeptical, new right phenomenon. Do you find yourself optimistic about all these kind of intellectual juices flowing in the past few years of, of the new right, so to speak, kind of looking forward for the future of uh, conservatism and the Republican Party? Because, I, I, you know, I imagine being there in Arizona like you are of all states, you've definitely seen kind of two sides to this coin.
1: Um, I see flickers. Let me take two minutes and unload a lot on that question, if I can. Please do. If anyone takes one statistic from this podcast home or seriously or to heart, it is this. The National Assessment of Education Progress, known as the Nation's Report Card, it's our best test of what our elementary and secondary students know, um, has that 50%, fully half of high school seniors get an F, fail in American history, 50%. That means 50% of our 17 and 18 year olds uh, do not know the story or the history of America. That is to say right at the age of becoming eligible to vote, perhaps getting their first job, perhaps joining the military, perhaps going to college. We spend a lot of time obviously speaking about a very huge problem, illegal immigration. But when you think about that statistic, that half of our 18 and 17 year olds don't know this history, we are making aliens of our own citizens here and sending them into a world, sending them into a country they don't recognize. We used to think that when college students would come home on spring break or Christmas break and talk about, you know, French philosophers their parents had never heard of and Marxist notions that uh, might have been offensive or might have been alien to their parents or grandparents. We used to say, well, that's college. They'll graduate. They'll enter the real world and they'll be fine once they get their first paychecks. We were wrong about that. Turns out there was a tremendous lab leak. It came out of the ivory tower, probably far more toxic than anything that came out of the Wuhan virology lab. And it was this leak of Marxist thought that the kids did take with them out of high school where they were taught America was a down market commodity and out of college where they were taught that Marxism was a better view or worldview than freedom and democracy and liberty and capitalism. And so they, through the schools, through the education schools and through elementary and secondary education for the past, I don't know, generation and a half or so, Uh, have changed this country uh, and have put that lab leak into our uh, environment that has not affected our lungs like Wuhan, but our brains. Uh, And I think that has made everything so bad, whereas we once thought our challenge was Hollywood and journalism. We awakened over the last decade to realize it's not just Hollywood. It's not just the major and mainstream media. It's now the NFL of all places. It's now the Department of Defense of all places. Things we used to think of, or Michael Barone once called Hard America, they've infiltrated and infected all of that. So that a country that began with live free or die, a country that went to war for freedom and equality, singing as he died to make men holy, we shall die to make men free, saw this virus that came to us in 2020 that did affect our lungs, and said, we're gonna go from live free or die and better, uh, better, better, better dead than red to let's roll up, a country that said let's roll 20 years ago, let's roll up under a couch. How did this happen to us, Josh? Uh, one of the things that gives me the flicker of hope is people did wake up, some people did wake up seeing what was going on in their children's and grandchildren's curriculum and started doing the most important thing a citizen can do which is run for school board and try and change it, because I think that's where the change is. Claremont focuses on law students and graduate students and college students. But I think we have an ancillary, if not maybe even more important duty to start fixing our elementary and secondary system. I know that's a lot. I don't know if that was responsive, but that's where I'm at on flickers of hope.
0: No, it's very helpful. It actually reminds me of a Bible quote that another previous guest on this show, Eric Erickson, likes to throw around quite a bit where he—I'm going to butcher the, the exact quote verbatim, but basically says, Seek the welfare of your city, and there you shall find welfare, or there you shall find peace. Again, I, I can't remember the, the exact quote, the reference, of course, being to the exile of the, of the Jews to Babylon— and it's, it's, it's powerful. I mean, so often it, it, that, that is where you have to start, is right there kind of fixing your, your, your immediate environment, your immediate surroundings. And only then can we start to kind of think about kind of the, the national issues, let alone kind of the international or global issues, which is actually a perfect segue to where I want to take this conversation next. But we're going to take it to a quick break before then. So please do stay with us. We have Seth Leapson joining us this week. We'll be right back with Seth. Welcome back. So, Seth, you had a very powerful op ed for us recently, and kind of speaking of kind of seeking the welfare of where you reside locally, this kind of hit me very hard because of some, you know, personal. Uh, unfortunate anecdotes that 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 I have from my family in this particular area over the past half decade or so of my life. I'm talking here about, of course, America's fentanyl crisis and drug overdose crisis. And this is, this is an issue that you have been admirably, admirably outspoken on for many years now. It is not a popular issue, to put it mildly. I think kind of the popular position, even in right of center circles these days, is to, is to talk about kind of live and let live, drug legalization, or at least decriminalization, all of that. Suffice to say, that is, that is not your stance. So why don't you walk us through your recent op-ed a couple weeks ago that you had for The Washington Times about just the horrific statistics of America's current woes when it comes to drug overdoses and fentanyl, perhaps, in particular. And then tell us also why you're so passionate about this issue, because I really do find that admirable.
1: Well, thanks, Josh. And thanks for paying attention to this as well. That is a problem. You're right to put your finger on it. Not enough attention has been paid. We hit a statistic about a month ago that in a different time, I think attention would have been paid to. It would have been headlines screaming across the country. I couldn't find any. Let me take it back this way and, and, and take us uh, take us on this road for a moment. 1979, anyone who looks at the drug issue, the illegal and dangerous drug abuse issue in this country, everyone who's ever looked at it, worked on it, dealt with it knows that 1979 was the single worst year of drug use in America. 14.1% of our population was regularly using illegal and dangerous drugs. And the country rolled up its sleeves and over the course of a decade, started to get serious about it. Nancy Reagan made it her cause. Joe Biden, head of the uh, Judiciary Committee in the Senate made it his cause and uh, sought to create the Office of National Drug Control Policy, which created the position of drug czar. Uh, And by 1989, we had one. And so this country got serious on those two fronts. The Partnership for a Drug-Free America started those ads. A lot of our audience, and you may remember, this is your brain on drugs, the egg in the frying pan, the diving into the empty pool. Those kinds of ads. Hollywood got in the act. Anti-drug messaging was suffused throughout not only movies but television shows. Everything from different strokes to Magnum PI, if you will, sitcoms to to dramas. Um, and there was a there was a serious commitment to this. And we actually did do something about it. People say you can't do something about it. Or the war on drugs. We can talk about that phraseology failed. It's not true. By 1992, this nation with its first drug czar, William Bennett, reduced drug use 60%. We got it down to the 5% range from 14.1% to about 5.8%. We reduced drug use in this country by 60%. Think about any other public policy problem we could reduce by 60%. It would be the cause for parades and celebrations, welfare, fatherlessness, crime, you name it. And then we let up and that's its own long story we can get into. But the headline that happened a month ago is we beat the 1979 number from 14.1%. We got it down to 5.8%. Last year, we hit 14.3%. We now have a new high watermark of drug use in this country. No one's talking about it in a serious sense. They are appeasing it. And we are also seeing a massive increase of drug deaths. So in 1992, when 5,000 Americans a year were dying from drug overdoses or drug poisonings, as I like to call them, we are now seeing 106, 107, 108,000 Americans a year dying. The population expanded by a third since 1992, 33%. Drug deaths expanded 2,000%. That was the essence of my piece, how and why that happened is in there. Um, but that's, that's the overview. For those that think live and let live, you cannot. Um, you cannot do it when you think about the ancillary effects of drug use. These are not victimless crimes. When you think about um, accidents, when you think about uh, workplace accidents, you think about street and uh, automobile accidents, uh, you think about the crime rate, 80% of violent crime arrests include people who are high on drugs. For people who want to reduce crime, start with drugs. Um, For people who want to start reducing government services from health and human services to policing, start with drugs. It is the vector that drives so much social pathology. And this country seems to have either uh, treated it as a blithe uh, problem that doesn't affect uh, society at large or individuals, or has started to um, appease it and raise the white flag like you see in major cities from San Francisco to New York with these insane public messages by organizations that call themselves departments of health that say, if you're going to use, start small, do it with friends. Is that how we reduce smoking? Is that how we reduced drunk driving? Did we say, if you're gonna drive drunk, have a hamburger first, drink a beer, do it with a friend? Or did we say, don't do it? How did we reduce smoking in this country? By showing the dangers of smoking and telling people not to start. It's really unbelievable.
0: I mean, I think back, there's a, Very well-known music festival every year in Chicago, where I lived for three years because I went to law school there. This festival, for those, you know, this is obvious if you're into kind of the music festival scene. Not really my scene personally, but again, neither here nor there. Uh, It's called Lollapalooza. And during Lollapalooza last year, CPD, the Chicago Police Department, put out various tweets basically saying exactly what you just said, Seth. I mean, I I saw these tweets. I think I dunked on them on Twitter at the time. How could I not? They basically said, you know, if you're going to use Molly, MDMA, whatever, you know, be responsible, be safe. And, uh, you know, I, I guess if we're being charitable, they don't realize how utterly stupid and definitionally oxymoronic that is. But, you know, another thing that comes to mind, I actually pulled out my calculator app while you were kind of, reciting some of those statistics. And again, for those of you who missed this op-ed, you can go ahead and check it out. It's called Anesthetizing Ourselves to Death. It is in the Washington Times from a couple weeks ago. And I just did a little quick math. So you said 106,000 drug overdoses per year. So divide that by 365 days in a year. 290 to 291 Americans dropping dead from drug overdoses a year.
1: I mean, in any... a number, number one killer of young adults right now.
0: You know, in any other world, that that is making headlines left, right, center, politics doesn't freaking matter. I mean, that is a catastrophic number. That is a a mid-sized airplane every single day going down of primarily young people. And, you know, I think, you know, we had this recent, you know, horrific video that came out of Memphis, Tennessee, and, you know, you know, there's been so much attention, of course, since uh, since George Floyd in, in May of 2020 about the alleged epidemic of, of, of blacks being killed by the police, which, as Heather McDonald and so many others have courageously shown statistically, just simply just it very, very, very straightforward statistically is simply not the national epidemic that those make it out to be, no matter how horrific some of these various one off videos that reach national attention are. But I, I guess I have a hard time just grappling with how, you know, juxtaposing those two particular issues, how the one issue just generates such mass national hysteria with very little statistical backing to it, whereas the drug issue gets no attention, and yeah. it is a galling, galling, galling human-human issue of our time. And the obvious question is why? Is, is, is the drug lobby just that powerful? Is that the answer?
1: It is very powerful. Uh, that is true. Um, I also think that there is an ethos. You're right, by the way, to say this shouldn't be a partisan issue. It really shouldn't. But there is an ethos of uh, not shaming users and accommodating them. You know, Back in the 70s and 80s, we called it drug illegal drug use. That turned into drug abuse. Then we coddled it further by calling it substance abuse. And now it's just called substance use, as if we're just talking about eating cheeseburgers, or drinking too much coffee. We've continued to coddle and detoxify the language around it for certain that has infected our mind. And a lot of people don't want to make quote unquote victims of the drug user, I suppose. But if you take the George Floyd, I mean, one wonders, one wonders if the George Floyd situation might've turned out differently if he weren't hopped up on drugs. We talk about the youth violence going on and the mass shootings going on. Almost every one of them involves drugs, whether it's Gabby Giffords in Tucson or whether it's the Marjorie Stoneman or the Uvalde school shootings, almost every one of them uh, has a baseline of the user of, of, of the, the violent attacker being a regular user who's hopped up on drugs. And, and, and we just seem to not want to connect these dots. Josh, we're, 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 as C.S. Lewis put it, we're, we're we're running for the fire hoses when there's a flood, rather than going after the real and serious issues. Exactly. Here. The numbers are stark. I'm glad you raised it. You um you've spent time in D.C. People who have spent time in D.C. go to that Vietnam Memorial Wall, that long dark scar in the ground. Fifty-eight thousand souls on that wall it took sixteen years to get that number. With drug deaths in this country, we could be building two walls every year.
0: Oh just horrifying when you kind of laid out like that. And, you know, let me ask you one follow-up question there, because as I mentioned earlier, you are based in Arizona, which for years now, really along with Texas, has been kind of ground zero of our various border and, and immigration fights. How much of the drug issue actually could be solved by quite simply just getting a firm hand on our border? I I know it's more complicated than that. I'm not trying to make it out to be like a straightforward immigration issue. But my my reading of the situation is that that would go a very long way, wouldn't it?
1: It would go a very long way. But there is a problem that doesn't completely cover it, which is while fentanyl certainly is flowing up through the border on Mexico Arizona and Texas. Um, there's no question about that. Uh, we are now probably the greatest drug, de- Arizona might be the biggest drug dealer of fentanyl to the rest of the country. There is another problem here, and that's the demand side. It wouldn't be sold here. It wouldn't be used here if people weren't using it, if they weren't, in other words, demanding it. You have a supply problem. You have a demand problem. Do you ever see that series, Narcos, The opening line of Narcos about the cocaine traffickers in the 80s tells you everything you need to know about this. The opening line is the narrator saying, and this was cocaine in those days, not fentanyl, but cocaine, said when we first got, and these were the Colombian cartels, when we first got to Miami, when we first got to Florida, we had a demand problem. In six months, we had a supply problem. Uh, So there is a craving, there is a desire, there is a perceived uh, need and um, an and appetite uh, here in America. And that's what we need to go after. Shutting down the border would be a great, great start. But you know what? We have a lot of labs in this country and every time we have normalized, regularized or legalized a certain uh, drug here, the cartels have moved on to a different drug in Central South America and Mexico. Um, you know, So whether we're talking about high potency pot or meth, the border would have nothing to do about right.
0: that. No, fair enough. Totally fair. Totally fair. So Seth, let's get you out of here on one kind of more local question than staying on the topic of Arizona. So one of my favorite columnists is Henry Olson, who's a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and also a columnist for the Washington Post. If I understand correctly, he's teaching a class out there in Arizona, I think at ASU, Arizona State in, in Tempe, I guess some sort of political science, political theory course. And one his column, where he announced his position for the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago, he referred to Arizona, if I remember it correctly, he referred to it as uh, America's most politically interesting state, and I I, I think that is probably true. Frankly, um, you know, even as far away as, as as Florida from where I live, just over the past few cycles, you know, Arizona has become a, a one of the country's brightest purple states it is it is closely divided each year it it is kind of ground zero for various reasons of the whole quote-unquote stop the steal phenomenon no matter what your thoughts on that may or may be there were high profile republican candidates who lost this past cycle carrie lake and blake masters and so forth there so uh, what are what, what do you think just more broadly about the future of arizona and i guess to kind of put more teeth on that is it possible that Arizona once again could become a red state, the likes of which it was for so many decades, or has that time just simply passed?
1: That's uh, a great question. And you're right. We are kind of a weird state and have been uh, for for our size and for our geography. We're a state that gave you uh, two Supreme Court justices and a chief justice. And we're a state that created, helped create the modern American conservative movement with Barry Goldwater. Uh, and Ronald Reagan, of course, his in-laws lived here and he did an awful lot of work, uh creating his um, political base in Arizona in the early 1960s. So we were a vector at least at one point for helping try and save the country along conservative lines. But I don't know the answer to your question. I hope so. I hope we can regain our senses here and regain our our legacy. It starts with good candidates um, and it starts with um, understanding that to appeal to enough voters so that Republicans can win serious majorities here again, we can't do it by only speaking to the base. Uh, businessmen are always, say, say, always be closing. I've always thought we always have to be evangelizing. Um, so whether it's my radio show or a few other people, Henry Olson teaching here, or John Gabriel's uh, podcast, he's based here too. You know, we try and do our best to reinstruct on the fundamentals and values. Um, And the state party needs to get really serious about recruiting really good candidates who don't turn off fellow Republicans or independents or Democrats. I know it can be done. I left Arizona as a lefty and I became a conservative. It can be done. We just need to do a better job of it. So I'm 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 slightly optimistic, um, but I'm not convincingly optimistic.
0: No, totally fair. And you know, I guess we'll we'll give one more shout out as well to Chris Buskirk, who, if I'm not mistaken, lives there in the Phoenix area as well. Chris is the editor of the online conservative journal American Greatness, which is a a wonderful journal of oftentimes provocative. And edgy conservative thought. so he's there in Arizona. So the, you know the intellectual infrastructure certainly seems to be in place there. You know whether the state GOP always has its kind of X's and O's.
1: <laughs> and it's, right. and it's t- it Midge Decter once said, "The GOP is the cross the conservative movement has to bear." <laughs> right.
0: Right. Uh, that, the, uh, that that, that right. that's actually a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful quote from the great late Midge Dector. But you know, Seth, what a pleasure to have you on this week. We're going to have to have you on again soon. But for now, this is a real treat for the audience. And thank you so much for joining us.
1: Treat for me, Josh. You're one of my heroes. Thanks. Really, very much.
0: The great Seth Liebsen, ladies and gentlemen, I really cannot commend his work enough for those of you who are less familiar. He's just a gentleman and a scholar. He is just very well-spoken. He consistently takes provocative positions, and he has the intellectual chops to back it up there. I want to underscore the courage that Seth has shown, not just in this recent op-ed, but he has been really outspoken for decades, if I'm not mistaken. We've only become friends over the past few years or so, but for decades, if I understand his trajectory correctly, he has just been outspoken on the drug issue, and, you know, to kind of paraphrase William F. Buckley and the founding of National Review in, in the 1950s, you know, Seth has basically been standing athwart drug legalization yelling, stop and statistically speaking we are about as bad a country as it gets now when it comes to the drug overdose epidemic i'm fairly confident that i have shared this with the audience in the past but this took a deeply personal note for me roughly 5 years ago now when uh, when a cousin that i was very close with, tragically overdosed. It, it was definitely fentanyl-related. I'm not entirely sure to this day whether it was just straight fentanyl or fentanyl-laced cocaine, but I know fentanyl was involved. Fentanyl is uh, it is Chinese Communist Party-funded chemical warfare on the American populace. There, there is really no other way to describe fentanyl specifically. That is exactly what it is. And they are taking down a mid-sized airplane a day of predominantly young people. It is just such an absolute horror. It is a scourge. And I just really hope, although sometimes it's hard to be particularly optimistic about this, but I really do hope that our policymakers kind of come around kind of Bill Bennett style. You heard Seth mention the former drug czar and Reagan-era education secretary, Bill Bennett. I hope that we kind of come around to a more sober consensus when it comes to fighting back against this just absolutely horrific epidemic one other thing that I want to underscore that we Seth and I kind of were joking at it at the end there was Arizona and Stop the Steal and the state GOP. So, look, Arizona is a complicated state politically. Carrie Lake and Blake Masters were very popular candidates on social media. They were kind of hitting all, all, the, all the Fox News rounds. They both, of course, lost their races. Notwithstanding the fact that Doug Ducey was a fairly popular Republican governor, Republicans still control you know, large swaths of, of the legislature, and the Supreme Court still leans conservative, and so forth there. One thing that I think is very important to emphasize when it comes to the Arizona Republican Party in particular, the Arizona GOP has a crazy problem. I, I think we should just be very candid and upfront about this. There are too many people, in the Arizona GOP probably more so than any other state GOP in the country who just talk way too much about stopping the steal, relitigating 2020, it is just this broader mentality that has just spread like wildfire throughout the entire partisan apparatus out there in the in the Grand Canyon state. And as we have said on this show many times, we discussed this with Mark Davis in a very recent episode, actually. There were all sorts of shenanigans when it came to the 2020 presidential election. Various states, such as Pennsylvania and North Carolina, changed their election laws either via administrative fiat or judicial fiat in direct contravention of the Constitution's very ex- express demand that had come from the state legislature. There were obviously no small numbers probably of of mail-in balloting or ballot harvesting related fraud, which was obviously an easily foreseeable consequence of the mass liberalization of early voting, mail-in voting, ballot harvesting, all of that there. But all of that aside, holding all of that aside, there is no point— in trying to relitigate any of this stuff. So, you know, I'll give you an example. I think it was like just this morning that we are recording, or maybe it was over this past weekend, I saw a headline about Trump and Carrie Lake saying that Carrie Lake is still going to win her Arizona gubernatorial election. Now, look, I was a big supporter of Carrie Lake's. I hope that she won that gubernatorial election there in Arizona. But if I'm not mistaken, she is 17,000 votes down, and there's something like 7,000 vowels at the most that could like possibly be recounted, you know, it doesn't take a PhD in math to, to break it down like that, guys. So, you know, I, I think if the Arizona GOP could just tame down kind of the stop the steal stuff, could tamp it down just a little bit and focus on the issues that matter, which in Arizona is so much about the border and immigration, of course, and the various cultural and societal woes that come from that just wide open border i think that the that the movement and the party out there would just be in much better shape and i'm grateful that people like seth leapson among others are there to kind of sound the right notes on the airwaves and in the journals and papers and so forth but thanks again to seth leapson for joining us this week we'll be right back with you for another episode of the josh hammer show next week until then hope you have a great week